This episode, we're off once again to the cradle of civilization to show you that spending time with your family really can sometimes literally be hell. And for our fact, we're investing a little bit of time to see what the future of the show has in store for all y'all. Wrapping up our LGBTQIA tour of the world today, here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 14, Middle East, Sumerian Queer Goddess. What up, what up, what up? How's everybody's week starting out here in May of 2021? Oh, buddy, it has been quite a year and a half up in this piece. However it is that you find yourself now, today, yesterday, tomorrow, we hope that you are putting in time for yourself. Doing what you can, doing what you need, what you want, for all things you and yours. Thank you for checking us out on that journey. Starting our show up top was the song Mr. Mischief by the music collective All Good Folks. The wondrous trickster logo of the show is given to us by the phenom Arthur, and the action-packed podcast cover art is given to you by the behemoth Jacqueline. I'm the voice on the other side of the microphone, thankful for your ears, Gree Omenma, casting the folklore and wondrous stories of all peoples from all over the world. Last week, we gave you the story of an intersex Hindu deity from Southeast Asia. This week, we're coming at you with information about the Sumerians, an ancient people from southern Mesopotamia, which today is located in southern Iraq. Now, every time we jump up into culture, I feel like I start off by telling you, these are an ancient people. I don't mean to get repetitive, but uh, ancient indigenous populations is kind of what the show's all about. So today, trust me when I say, these are an ancient people. Sumer is the earliest of the southern Mesopotamian settlements coming into existence sometime between seven and 8,000 years ago. As we spoke of last time, there are a number of separately sprouting centers to civilization around the world, and the Fertile Crescent region, which houses Mesopotamia, is one of them. Now, there are a number of things that go into defining quote-unquote civilization, all of them which I understand, and not 100% of them, which I'm a pure hard sell on, but regardless, ancient Mesopotamia checks all them boxes. Historians are a bit split when it comes to the specific origins of the Sumerians. Some believe the first permanent settlement hit between 7 and 6,000 years ago by people migrating from West Asian regions. Others believe North African migrants came up into the Middle East from the Sahara. There has been cultural and genetic evidence that points to both of these theories as true, so as in many cases with this podcast, we don't 100% know. The Sumerian Empire truly took shape during the 4th millennia BCE, before current era. And in the 3rd millennium BCE, the Sumerians and the Akkadians, to the north, began to very heavily influence each other's cultures. By the end of that millennia, Sumerians were conquered by the Akkadians after a bit of back and forth, because if we've been taught one thing by the culture-slash-history sections on this podcast, humanity really likes to subjugate itself. During its thousands of years, Sumer had a number of city-states with approximately five that were the largest and most dominant. There were over ten that were large, but not as large or influential as the top five, and then ten relatively minor locations, but still large areas of urban growth and gathering. One of the region's larger cities could have had just shy of six figures worth of people at its peak, and to estimate a population for the entire Sumer region probably puts the figure at just over a million as a rough average. 
For further scale, the Earth probably had about 30 million people total at this point in time. The culture of the ancient Sumerians was, as many others are, influenced by styles and lifestyles of the region. Items of war included spears, daggers, and bows and arrows. Items of ceremony included knives, headdresses, and tablets. And items of construction were copper, gold, and wood. Artisans flourished through craftsmanship, particularly pottery of all kinds, and music, particularly through the lyre and the flute. Local agriculture included coastland fisher people, interior farmers growing grain, and those in between raising sheep and goats. Their social hierarchy started with the great man, or king, because to them, that word meant the same thing. And everyone else was either free or a slave. That's it. <laughs> That's the hierarchy. A lot more simple than pretty much all the other ones that we've seen. Marriages were arranged, and though Sumerians looked down upon premarital intimate relations as a society, many participated in this anyway and just kept it on the low. Speaking of, they had an interesting concept as far as virginity was concerned. It didn't exist. They actually defined someone by the number of intimate acts they had not performed prior to marriage. So, uh, reverse virginity? And in a society that looks down on premarital sex, defining someone's sexual being according to the intimate acts they've not performed prior to marriage? Yeah, yeah, I'm soups confused as well, but hey, I, I'm, I'm on board. This is all way interesting because, furthermore, Sumerians believed masturbation enhanced sexual potency, Sex work existed as just an open part of the society, and priestesses were not able to give birth as part of their sacred vow. So they openly and regularly participated in anal sex. Not because sex was banned, but because this was their form of birth control. Now I realize this is much more of an adult topic and one of an intimate nature, way more so than any other that we've talked about on the show so far. This is, of course, by design, and how I would like to talk in brief that this should not be a taboo subject. You can see in any number of ancient societies that sexual relations were part of society in a much more open and what I would personally consider healthier way than they are today. For better or for worse, whether part of a sacred ceremony, procreation, or life, love, and pleasure, our ancestors have shown us how humans have, can, and should own their sexuality. This spans the complete spectrum from some that may identify as very sexual beings to someone that may identify as asexual. We have unhealthy enough imagery and behavior towards and about sexual experiences and identities in this day and age. Taking a look at the past, the, the past past, may help show us how we can as a people practice sex or choose not to in a consenting, safe, and respectful manner. One of the key takeaways that I think allowed the Sumerians to do this was the humble nature of their religion. The Sumerians believed in a wide-ranging pantheon of many gods that took human form, who then faced wide-ranging challenges, representing cosmic forces and happenings that took the form of tasks, responses, and consequences. It doesn't 100% scan, and I'm going to get flack for saying this, but it's kind of like the antithetical Greek pantheon. <laughs> Regardless, for ancient Sumer, there was no regional overlapping or a consensus when it came to gods and goddesses. So not every deity of every city-state was recognized in other city-states. 
Sumerian people were some of the earliest known humans on the planet to document their belief system, so a lot can be gleaned from their thoughts on mythology and astrology. Common gods that one might find throughout Sumer would include Inki, the god of beneficence and wisdom. Enlil, the god of storm, wind, and rain. The sun god Utu and the moon god Sin. Anana, the subject of today's episode, who was known as Ishtar in Akkadia, was the goddess of love, beauty, sexuality, prostitution, and was the deification of Venus, the morning, and evening star. Now, to learn a little bit more about Inanna, let's take one final look at Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer, Myth, Symbol, and Spirit. As much as I know I've had thoughts about many of these entries and their wording, I absolutely have to give it up for this book. Without it, I'm, I'm not quite sure I would have even had a series of episodes for this podcast. I've only scratched the surface with LGBTQIA stories, fables, deities, everything in between, so please, if you have a moment, check this book out. It, it absolutely will reward you. Trust me. The encyclopedia entry for Nana is as follows. While empires rose and fell in the Fertile Crescent, the worship of the goddess Inanna remained a constant in the lives of Mesopotamians. Inanna controls the seasonal cycles as well as those of human life. She is the bestower of bounteous crops and a patron of artists and craftspersons. According to G. Leck in 1994, quote, In the hymns and prayers, it is Inanna who represents and controls the me, parenthetical, essential quality or inborn gift, and Garza of sexuality. She is the patron of brides and prostitutes, as well as of eunuchs and homosexuals. Her personality, which spans the roles of both genders, provides a unique frame of reference for all aspects of sexual behavior and the capacity for gender metamorphosis. End quote. Inanna is often depicted as visiting taverns and converting her own temples into such establishments. As a patron of prostitutes, she is sometimes depicted as an owl, or hybrid human-female owl, which, like the harlot, comes out at dusk. As a transgendered goddess, Inanna is portrayed as an armed and winged Amazon. As a patron of gender-variant women, Inanna was served by transgendered female or perhaps lesbian priests or priestesses. As a patron of transgendered and homoerotically inclined males, she was served by priest and others. An ancient text concerning Inanna and transgenderism reads, She turns a man into a woman. She turns a woman into a man. She adorns a man as a woman. She adorns a woman as a man. Inanna, polar opposite to a few other deities that we've explored these past few episodes, has many tales. And they're all entertaining. She has one which you can see could have given birth to the concept of Cain and Abel, just as she has one that could have even more so be seen to influence the serpent, the tree of knowledge, and Lilith. So, yeah, like I said, these people are ancient. Because Anana has so many tales, I was not 100% in selecting the one that we did for this episode, but that being said, it's pretty apparent which tale we'd go with. We ended up going with her most popular one, her descent into the underworld, for reasons that I hope you will enjoy and see as we march through her tale.
Once, very long ago, there was a goddess, and she was in mourning. Ureshkigel, goddess of the underworld, had just become a widow. She was preparing the funeral rites of her husband, Gugalana. As she wept, the pain and the fear could be felt worlds away by her younger sister, Enana. Nearly identical, this was not uncommon. As Anana was the queen of heaven, it was only natural that she may feel that which befell her sister, who happened to be the queen of hell. Before departing, Anana told her minister, Nin Shabur, that were Anana not to return in three days' time, Nin Shabur should go to the four gods above and ask for their assistance. Nin Shabur nodded gravely. She knew that except for messengers of hell, no one was allowed in or out of the domain. Simply attending this funeral was dangerous to someone even as powerful as Anana. The goddess of heaven was garbed in full royal attire, wearing a turban, a wig, a necklace, armored breastplate, her finest dress, her golden ring, and her staff. Each part of her ensemble was a connection to and manifestation of her divine powers. Having made her way to the entrance of hell, Anana wrapped her staff on the gates, announcing her arrival and asking to enter. The gatekeeper scurried to its master and told the queen of hell that her sister was at the front door. Still grieving, Ereshkigel snarled for her sister to leave. Wincing, Anana could feel her sister lash out, but she was resolute. Ereshkigel grew increasingly cold towards her sister's self-effacing love and concern. The Queen of Hell told the gatekeeper to bolt each of the seven doors into hell. To let her sister in, but only one door at a time, and only after she removed one royal garment after every single door. The gatekeeper returned to its post, and after the gate swung open, the keeper demanded Anana's necklace before she would be allowed to enter. Narrowing her eyes, Anana ripped the beads from around her neck and dashed them to the floor. Moving from one gate unto the next, the gatekeeper asked for one item of power before allowing her to enter through. The Queen of Heaven complied stoically each and every time. Standing before the last gate, Anana had but her dress left to give, where the gatekeeper stood in the doorway between the goddess and her sister. Untying the dress at her neck, the garment slumped to the ground and her wings unfurled. The raw essence of the goddess made the gatekeeper turn its face to the side as it collected her final item. Without a second glance behind her, the now fully vulnerable goddess strode directly into the gates of hell. Iresh Kegel knelt before the body of Gugalana as Inanna walked up beside her. Putting her hand on her sister's shoulder, Inanna felt the Queen of Hell shudder and pull away. Inanna was sorry for her pain. She was here for her, with her. Iresh Kegel wiped her eyes and laughed. This is true. Her sister was with her. Now? And forever. Anana bowed her head to her sister. She knew that she was hurting. She knew her sister was lashing out. She knew she thought she had won. None of it really mattered. 
Her family needed her here. So here is where Anana would be. Nin Shabur had been meditating when the clock struck, claiming the passing of the third day since her goddess had departed. Anana, the love of her existence, had not returned. Inside, she was terrified. But on the outside, she knew exactly what needed to be done. Making her way to the first god, Enlil, the minister asked for help in retrieving the Queen of Heaven from the underworld. Enlil scoffed. One did not become the Queen of Heaven without some form of merit. She was plenty capable. She would return upon her own accord. Bowing deeply, Nin Shabur left the Elder God and made her way to Nana to ask the same thing. Sure that the Queen of Heaven did not really need their help, Nana said the same as Enlil, as did Anu. So when Nin Shabur made her way to the fourth and final God, Enki, the only thing keeping the minister together was her devotion to Anana and her trust in the divine. Telling the entire story to Enki, and asking for assistance, Nin Shabur closed her eyes tightly and bowed her head to the floor. Enki furrowed his brow. The Queen of Heaven was the goddess of fertility and of love. Her trapped in the underworld could easily hasten destruction, not just of heaven, but of all the realms. He nodded to himself and knelt beside the exhausted minister. He bade her to rise, and he smiled. Tears fleckled both of their eyes as he reached into the ground itself and brought forth mounds of clay. Shaping the clay into two beings, the minister gasped to herself as the being suddenly came to life. The Galatura and the Kujara were like humans, but not. They were of the divine, but also not. They were neither man nor woman, but in between and beyond. They looked to Nin Shabur smiled, dried her eyes, and accompanied her to the underworld. They had a goddess to save. Iresh Kegel sat on her throne, smiling to herself. It was a cruel and empty smile. But sometimes, such are the things that bring comfort to those who are lost and in pain. Anana sat in the dirt and the grime next to the throne, as she had been instructed. Time to time, she would catch the eyes of her sister. She would smile, her sister's anger would falter, and Anana would feel their connection strengthen. Only for Eresh Kegel to scowl, shake the hope from her eyes, and allow the cycle to repeat itself over and over again. Suddenly their dance was interrupted by a knocking at the gate. The Queen of Hell winced, and the Queen of Heaven comforted her. The gatekeeper went to see who would dare, when it suddenly stopped. There was a measly human minister, yes, but to either side of her were beings the gatekeeper had never seen before. They asked to be let in. The gatekeeper knew this was not allowed, but still... It was compelled. The Galatura and the Kujara walked closer to the door and assured the gatekeeper they meant no harm. 
the gatekeeper, for the first time in existence, opened the gate under no instruction from its goddess. It made the decision on its own. The Galatura and the Kajara acknowledged this and the gatekeeper and pronounced their appreciation. The gatekeeper slowly crumpled to the ground, awash in happiness and pride and peace. The Galatura and the Kajara bade Ninshabur to not even look into the depths of hell, and one by one, they opened the gates and made their way inside. The closer they got to the center, the more Ereshkigal felt unwhole. Pained and unsettled, her confusion was paramount as two of the most beautiful beings she'd ever seen walked into her throne room with all of Anana's royal garments. Iresh Kigel writhed in pain and in longing. The Galatura comforted her and stroked her hand as the Kajara helped the Queen of Heaven into her ensemble. The Queen of Hell turned to all three and burst into tears. She knew what she had done. She knew her sister was going to leave. She knew that now she would have no one. The Queen of Heaven took the Queen of Hell into her arms and rocked her. The Galatera and the Kujara told the two goddesses they believed they had a solution. Inanna strode through all seven gates and into the arms of her minister. Ninshaber looked around for the Galatera and the Kujara, but as each of the seven gates clanged shut, the two were nowhere to be found. The Queen of Heaven looked back one last time and sighed. The two had elected to stay with her sister, being of the divine, but not deities. Like humanity, but not limited to, they possessed abilities and awareness that was even beyond the Queen of Heaven and the Queen of Hell. Anana knew of the vast amounts of pain, both physical and emotional, that her sister was experiencing. She wanted to try and help, but she could not. Maybe, maybe they could. Ninshaber held her tightly and told her goddess she knew exactly what she meant and how the two beings must have felt. Inanna smiled and murmured, Yes, yes, I suppose you do. From that day forward, Inanna proclaimed her temple welcoming to all those without gender, to all those awash in confusion about identity all those who wished for peace and love, regardless of what that looked like. And, according to the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia, that is just one of the many ancient epic tales about their queer goddess of heaven. Now, I took liberties <laughs> 100%. Uh, there's no hiding this. I don't mean to think that I can do better than a culture that had no concept of virginity and besides the arranged marriage thing seemed to have really not bad ideas on the ancient world. I actually undersold their artisans up at the top. They are world class. Check them out when you get the chance. But 
there are parts of the story that I modified, uh, some that I added, and some that I took away. One example of these, uh, Inanna, has a husband. You can check out the stories in the show notes, but the dude is either the greatest thing ever and the source of all this strife in the myth because both queens want him, or the worst thing ever and gets tortured by demons at the end. Seriously, on both of those. Uh, You all know me, so you know I was probably thinking about ending it with the dude getting tortured by a demon. Trust me, in that tale, he at least deserved to get kicked in the janks. But I I like the way that it ended with Inanna and Ninshiba in each other's arms. I added I added much more to the gatekeeper role. In the in the tale, the gatekeeper opens the gate. That that's like it. I like making more of an arc for this character and kind of envisioned him sort of like the imp thing from season one of Adventure Time that was kicking it with the manly minotaur. And um, I changed uh, 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 I changed the sister. In all of the tales, the sister is a conventional evil stepsister or evil queen of hell trope. That's pretty, that's tired to me. You know, I was thinking more of a, a cat who does dumb, evil things because she's absolutely wrecked. That reads as more human than I think the other version that, you know, I feel is in line with someone that the the Sumerians would build a god as. Besides that, one of the interpretations is that there are no sisters. One of the readings of the myths is that they're both the same person and that one is the reflection of the other, or more appropriately, that Anana descending into the underworld is a journey of self-reflection. I love, I love that interpretation. And I can absolutely feel that. With the, with the tale that we spun, we wanted each character to, to kind of have, you know, their thing, the best that we could put to paper. Uh, but at the same time, you can kind of see uh, the characters that I, I liked the most and, and personally had a connection to. And for our fact, I'm going to spend a little bit of time to talk about the show. I apologize. I know that for the past six episodes, I spoke about a person or a group of people of that culture that exhibited an identity that coincided with the theme for the show. I'm not at all trying to dismiss or do away with any queer person of Middle Eastern origin in the past, present, future. I have a number of links in the show notes, people and organizations that you can and should most definitely check out. But I, I had to take this moment to talk about the show and a bit of my own personal journey. And for my exclusion and deviation from theme, I wholeheartedly apologize. I was not sure that I was going to be able to continue with the show. As in, the original ending of this episode wasn't the ending of the episode. It was the ending of the show. Uh. So I finished school two weeks ago, which was all gravy, but I was, I was immediately cast in uh, four different gigs and was going to be switching shifts at work because they wanted me to concentrate on producing more so than writing. So I, I went from having what I thought was going to be more time to less time in, in a 72-hour span. And, and trust me, I'm incredibly blessed. I'm very, very happy very, very lucky. None of these things are bad. It's just um, already 
I have to cut two hours of sleep each night for at least two weeks just in order to uh, take care of the things that are now on my plate. Um, I'm fine. And yeah, I, you know, it's I'm fine with not having a social life, uh, especially in the middle of the pandemic. But uh, I also have personal health and physical maintenance to try and <laughs> take care of the best that I can, along with family time. Uh, by the way, B- BT Dubs, Happy Mother's Day, everyone. So um, I had to start thinking about just what what was viable, what was possible. And um, at the heart of it, this podcast is about stories. I yap a lot, a lot, lot, and I'm sorry. I'm very sorry for that. But uh, to just cut straight to the chase, I'm going to be removing that portion of things. Starting next episode, you're only going to get this story. I love researching the culture. I, I love talking to you about the tales and then linking a fact, but just delivering you one long story or two short stories for every part of the world is what uh, I decided the show's going to be in moving forward. Episode 15 to 21, we'll be giving you stories of the sun, the sun mythos, sunset, sunrise, everything and anything to do with the sun for mythology all over the world. That idea inspired by our guy, Casey Hidma. To give you a preview, you'll have the intro song. It's going to have the episode number, continent, region, story, then the story itself, then credits, then outro music. I won't know what runtime will be until we start putting these eps together, but uh, I am pretty certain that it's going to be less than what it is now. If you like this, if you hate this, if you're not bothered by this, if you have all the thoughts, please let me know. Always, 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 always let me know what you think. Exercise your thoughts, your beliefs, your musings, and um, thank you. Thank you all very much just for listening as you do and for being who you are. And that's the show, folks. Thank you very, very much for coming along with us as we toured the entire world in regards to ancient indigenous myths and fairy tales of the LGBTQIA community. On the real, I am going to miss the hell out of this theme. It's crazy. I uh, I started the podcast expecting it to be 100% structured like this, like by theme or by seasons. And then in pre-production, there were some discussions and we went back and forth and I'm like, uh... I'm not sure logistically that's going to work. So we were like, let's just do season one as creation myths, and then it'll be a toss-up from there. We'll just go with whatever we like or whatever we feel, whatever we find per region moving forward. Dedicating uh, volume two, season two, as LGBTQIA lore has taught me so much about so many things. I seriously, I just want to do a LGBTQIA-centered podcast here on out. In fact, Besides having to change my format for for personal reasons, there are a couple other theme season arcs that I want to explore. Just wait for number four. Otherwise, this would be exactly what I'd be doing from now on. I really, I really deeply love so many of these tales that we went over just these past seven episodes, and I can't tell you enough. There are so many more. I mean, seriously, it's just... There are so many queer myths fables, stories from, and, and about the community. It's, it's almost like our ancestors completely define gender and identity and sexuality in a different way than we do right now. Just saying. All of the love in the world goes out to all good folks for their song Mr. Mischief, which bookends every episode. All the love in the galaxy for Jacqueline and her podcast cover artwork, and all the love in the universe for Arthur and his logo artwork. 
If you have any questions or comments or season requests, please write us an email at info at coloredfolklore.com. If you instead want to take a look at the socials, you can see how the show has and will evolve at our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. We're at the handle Colored Folklore, all one word, and we are experiencing a serious lag, but I will take time during our season three concept slash episodes to really take a look at and mess with our web presence. The best way, as always, to chart that progress is through our website, www.coloredfolklore.com. All of our episodes are there, front and center, literally, front page and center of it. You can listen at a bunch of spots on the web also. SoundCloud, YouTube, all of the podcast platforms are linked on the website. And if you have a moment, please leave us a rating or review or mention the website to someone that you think needs a dose of indigenous lore. These stories were composed to teach society something fierce, and they're still doing that to this day. Show others, teach others, love others, love yourself. Please, Work to be happy. Work to help change society the best that you can in a way that benefits us all moving forward. Be yourself. We all over here wish you nothing but the best. Your family nothing but the best. Be safe. Be healthy. Be happy. There's a solid chance we won't be talking like this anymore. So, you know, before I get too emotional, I'm going to sign off. Thank you, thank you, thank you, my kingdom, for the... No, 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 I can do better than that. Oh, to thank you or not to... Oh, damn it, that one's even worse. Me too. Thank you. Ha <laughs> ha! Nailed it!